You're listening to The Magnet Podcast. Hello and welcome to The Magnet Theater Podcast. I'm your host, Louis Kornfeld. My guest today is the great TJ Mannix. Uh, TJ, thank you for being part of the show. Great. I'm excited to be possibly number 60. We have yeah, 60 or 61. I don't know what number this is, uh, uh, but we're in our 60s. It's, uh, it's pretty good. It's a lot of episodes. It's, it's the new 40. Of, yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. I'll tell you. Oh, yeah. Uh, um, so you were just saying that you were, were uh, a DJ in college. You did college radio with the 1 a.m. to 4 a.m. slot. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I, I was a DJ and like 1 to 4 in the morning, you got just the strangest people calling. But because it was college radio, you weren't allowed to put people on live. No. And, and I realized really quickly why. Because you would get so many like indecent proposals and people that were obviously touching themselves. Oh, really? Or you'd get people that like were really like fans yeah. and the strangest, like, why are you a fan of someone that's on the radio once a week from one to four in the morning? Yeah. Did you have like regular callers, people who like knew? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you'd have your friends would call, you know, your people would call for, I don't say that, I wouldn't say I had the best instincts. Like I, like I would not play the Smashing Pumpkins and then a new record came in and I was like, oh, this looks interesting. And then I got four calls from people going, that's Wilson Phillips. Uh-huh. <laughs> not what you're supposed to play on college radio. But very good. I was like, I, I like the harmonies of Hold On. Yeah. Uh, no. No, they you, wanted... You don't like the harmonies of No, I did, but they wanted the Cocteau Twins. Oh. Well, hold On's a pretty good song. Yeah. I, nobody remembers the Cocteau Twins. Now, no. But Hold On... Uh, Though they uh, had great album cover art. Yeah. Because there were albums then. Uh, I missed albums. I came in... I, 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 I did not listen to music until college, probably, when a friend kind of just started burning me a bunch of shit to listen to. I really, were, were you doing movies or books or, or yeah, nothing? Yeah. Gaming? Yeah, movies, books. My parents didn't really listen to music, and, and mm. we didn't have like a stereo at home when I was a kid. So I, I in the car... The only thing I would really listen to it, uh, I, I had the soundtrack to the original Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, uh, 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 and then my parents bought this set, or somebody sold them on this set of, of uh, uh, audio cassettes that were like excerpts from the music uh, uh, of the great Western composers, and then like telling, dramatizing their lives. So I would listen to that. So so when I was a kid, I knew a lot about like Beethoven's life and and that kind of wow. thing. But uh, I was like totally out of music in general. You know, I, I, I still don't know anything, but I, I knew less than nothing back then. And I completely missed out on, on albums and cover art. That, that's just not a part of my... Well, they, they were on their way out, but we still used them in radio stations because that's how you... That's, nobody was going to transfer their entire radio station over to digital when digital was right. a, a lark. Yeah. I mean, I was an exchange student in college, and I went with three cassette tapes. And I was in Germany, and that's the only English that I had to listen to. Mm. So I would listen over and over again to, I think, Prince Around the World in a Day, mm-hmm. Tina Turner's Private Dancer, and We Are the World. <laughs> yeah, <sorry>. Which was... <laughs> it's about as 80s as it gets. Very cutting edge. Yeah. that, yeah. that if, I, if I were to do a, uh, like a quick cutaway to like a scene that took place in the 80s, if I wanted to like let you know it was the 80s, I would choose those three songs. Yes. My, my tapes at, at uh, summer camp, the first tapes I owned were... Uh, uh, the Best of Queen Volume 2 and I think the soundtrack to uh, uh, Jurassic Park may have, may have been that year <laughs> maybe the next year those are my two tapes <laughs> and the Best of Queen Volume 2 is a great tape yeah it is real good tape 
But what else was there other than... Was basically it. I'll tell you what. Uh, uh, two sides of the Jurassic Park soundtrack. Are like You remember that as being a great soundtrack? It's not. That part is great, and the rest of it is filler music. No offense, John Williams, but you got two hours of, you know, Spielberg lays it on you. Great know. lyrics. Great lyrics. Uh, um, uh, I There's something... About the image. Were you by yourself when you were a DJ? Like at 9 in the 1 a.m. Oh, yeah. Slot? Oh, yeah. You're a DJ in the student union at University of Miami that was closed. Yeah. And in order for anyone to come in, you had to, you had to go down and go down the staircase and prop the door open for, oh, somebody so, so to, for the next DJ. Uh-huh. So you're in a, you're in a, you're in a basement or, or the basement? No, it was on the, the second floor. The, uh-huh. It was on the second floor of the student union. And there was like one window that opened up on the whole student union. So people, because everybody could gather and watch you on the radio uh-huh. but it was closed i i wouldn't mind that at all the privacy in the late night wouldn't bother me at all what would bother me is people calling in the middle of the night i'm 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 terrified by the sound of a phone ringing Oof. well they would call and say things like you have dead air <laughs> <laughs> when you're just learning yeah because you have pretty much one session with somebody where they teach you how to do everything and then you're kind of on your own yeah so you know you would occasionally like put on a public service announcement that would be like a blank they were like, they, they, they kind of looked like uh, eight track tapes. Mm. You would put them in and they would automatically go through the whole thing and they would re rack themselves mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. that the next time you had to put in that public service announcement, it would be back to the beginning. Yeah. But sometimes they would be blank. And people just loved calling in. Other DJs would love to call in and go, dead air, loser. That's such a shitty thing. So you're, you're a DJ and then when you're off, you're not working at 1 a.m. You're just monitoring what the other DJs are doing so you can yeah. make fun of them. Ah, I mean, eventually I, I moved into like, I was doing like 10 to 1 on Friday nights. Yeah. Which was like, yeah, Friday night. But everybody goes out on Friday nights. So yeah. nobody's listening to the radio on Friday night. I, uh, uh, I, regret, I regret not being involved in radio when I was younger. I, when I was in high school, I had, a, I had a producer's license. Me and Megan and Charlie Wickroft and Corey Grimes, we, were, we all had producer's licenses at our local community uh, television uh, um, you know, uh, uh, which it was center, you know, whatever. Um, but there were two different kinds of licenses that you can get, and we got we got one. We were not in-house producers. We were allowed to use their editing equipment, and then we could submit tapes of stuff that we had made. And then there was like a broadcast producer where you were actually able to use the studio itself, and none of us ever did the studio itself. But I have really uh, um, fabulous memories of doing stuff over at uh, CTV. You meet the most fascinating people in, in, the, in the world of like local, local broadcasting. Uh, uh, it's like the coolest, it's just like a completely different universe. It's this alternative universe. Yeah. And, and like shows like Tim and Eric or uh, um, I feel like 30 Rock may have like made fun of it a little bit, but like they really nail the tone of this like bizarre offbeat world of just kind of I think of them as late night people even though we yeah. were there during the daytime but it was all like weird late night people who were involved in the production of this stuff before I moved to New York City I was living in North Carolina and uh, people would come down because I was doing regional theater stuff and people would come down from New York and I had one friend that would bring these videotapes of just public access TV mm. and uh, it was the most non-North Carolina thing in the world there were things like there was some little girl named Damaris mm who would dance for like a half an hour and she was like sweaty and like she was looked like she was going to pass out but like her mom was off to the side going dance to Mary yeah. dance yeah yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah and every anybody could have a tv show so 
people would do talk shows about the most inane things. Yeah. And just the oddest characters in New York City were able to have a voice. I, I found it so soothing. And like Staten Island CTV wasn't nearly as interesting as Manhattan TVD, uh, 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 CTV. Um, but it was still pretty interesting. And, and back when I was living on the island, I would just put it on on Friday nights to yeah. have. It, there was something very kind of calming about it. And it was. It was like Staten Island had its own little girl dancing for an hour <laughs> and and it also had its own like older woman dancing in front of a green screen and, and doing karaoke for like her hour weekly show and then taking fan letters and and there was the joey g show was a particular favorite of mine which joey g was like he's big on Staten island because he films all of the all the weddings the videographer he does all the italian weddings and sweet 16s and uh, so the joey g show is they, they then just broadcast your wedding and your sweet 16 did you guys have robin bird in staten we Island? didn't that was my big that discovery when manhattan. i saw manhattan was the robin bird show we had mike alpert uh uh um which isn't like nearly as insane as as robin bird but mike Al- mike alpert steve alpert i forget his first name something alpert herb alpert he he, he like was I guess like a glamour photographer, whatever the hell he was. But he would like pick up women, and uh, uh, um, he had models on his show. And it was it, women would take their clothes off, and they would like stand there smiling, stand there as if they were a photo. So like not moving, but they weren't a photo. They're just standing there because you see them like moving around a little bit, or you see like like their cheeks twitching, perspiration, and, <laughs> perspiration. So so it's like a mostly naked woman standing there, and then they would superimpose images of like. Uh, he'd like get in a car with a camera and drive around the city with a camera and he'd be superimposing these images of like the city driving by and then like images from like movies would be superimposed on top of that so you just see this woman's face like staring at you like a photo smiling directly at you but then this bizarre collage of uh, uh, like whatever it was the weirdest thing it was so weird that's like part of the joy of it was like you're watching these things and you know none of it's a put on it's just this like what is going through your mind, live broadcast people? Well, I, I love that world. I just, I just remember Sherry O'Terry on Saturday Night Live once did a parody of Robin Bird. And you know, 99% or 98% of the country had no idea what she was doing. Because yeah. only, you only knew it if you lived in Manhattan. Yeah. You know, she was there with like her ratted blonde hair and putting on lip gloss, wearing a crocheted bikini. And she was just the most bizarre adult character and her whole claim to fame was that she was in like a couple of scenes of Debbie Does Dallas. Yeah. And it was just porn, 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 and people that were like obviously on heroin or crystal meth stripping. You know, usually this is what people want to talk to me. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny. It's so funny because when I moved to New York, I remember yeah. just being like, did I just, did I just see that? Yeah. My biggest fear was somebody walking in. Or like a roommate coming in in the morning and turning on the TV and it would be on channel 35 uh-huh. and you would know what your roommate was doing uh-huh. the night before. When, when did you move to New York? <laughs> I moved to New York in 1997. Okay. All right. So it was like long past like the, the scary period of New York. Yeah. That, that was like, that was like mid Giuliani, right? No, no. Giuliani. No, no. Giuliani started in, was it 90 or 98? Dink, that, Dinkins that? was still mayor, I think. In, no, in 97? No, Dinkins was mayor, um, I think Dinkins was mayor like around 92 or so. I don't remember, yeah, I guess. Giuliani, so if Giuliani wasn't mayor in 97, he, it, it was pretty close to then. Yeah, yeah. Because they hadn't really changed 42nd Street yet. I remember when they, were, they picked up the movie theater and moved it down 42nd Street to be the AMC theater. 
Really? And they, they put it on rollers. Really? And I remember watching, I remember watching it. They put it on rollers and it rolled so slow that it was too boring to watch. But they rolled it from, it used to be closer to like where the new Amsterdam theater was. Huh. And they just rolled it down and then that's where they built the AMC theater and Madame Tussauds and that's, the new Hilton. And, that's really weird. I yeah. had no idea they did that. Huh. The entire theater, the facade, the entire inside of the theater, the whole like, would you call it a coppola? What do you call that? Yeah, I guess, yeah. The arc, yeah. the whole big round thing yeah, that yeah. is normally in the center of a theater for acoustics. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Uh, um, and so you came, so you came to New York, uh, uh, from Florida via North Carolina. Yes. I was in North Carolina for about three years. Yeah. I planned to be there for about a month, but I loved it. I was really surprised by how charming and cosmopolitan it was. It yeah. was a little oasis in the middle of the rest of North Carolina, but Raleigh was great, great yeah. restaurants and theaters and like 40 universities. And it was really a surprisingly interesting and rich culture. What were you doing there? You were working? Uh, yeah. Well, I got there and the first thing I did was go to an audition and, uh, I was the only guy that could waltz. Mm. So I wound up getting my first equity job, uh, with Terrence Mann, who's, uh, the guy that was the beast on Broadway and mm-hmm. the first original Javert and wow. Les Mis and he was artistic director and yeah. So I got my first job there and then I started working at, uh, Blockbuster and somehow shot up the corporate ladder until I was running a couple of stores. And, wow. Uh, very strange. And I was on track to be like a regional or district manager and was like, I don't want to do this. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, the people that came from New York, usually like the majority of the cast was professionals out of New York, and they, they hired some locals that weren't in the union yet. And so many of them were what I'd call white hats. What is that? They're really talented but also they wear a white hat they're really good people that like would be kind to the locals and uh encourage you and had no problem talking to you about the craft and i would sit in the wings while everybody else was playing poker and i'd watch these people performing every night doing these like brilliant little moments that and i was like god i want to do that that's that's so amazing that they can have these little moments even like little moments the audience barely saw Mm -hmm. but were so honest and so so well prepared and just these wonderful little honest raw vulnerable moments and I remember uh first time I talked to them about it and I'd go up to someone and say hey I don't want to bother you I'm just the local guy but you do this thing every night and I watch it every night and I just that's what I want to be and they would be like really kind and like they would want to talk about it and they would encourage me to like well you should do it I mean you're good at what you do why don't you come to New York and I did about nine shows down there and they would always finally they talked me into it and I was like okay mm-hmm. time to I, I finally said I, I can have a career in the corporate world doing whatever I want I can do I'm a, I can do corporate I'm good at it mm-hmm. but I know that I I know that I've wanted to act my whole life and I should get it out of my system so I said I'll go to New York for two years and and then I'll come back and I'll be fine with it but then I stayed for 18 years mm-hmm. so but I said, yeah, I just, I didn't want to uh, ever have any regrets. Yeah. So I quit my job. I quit. I had the, you know, the, ha- the, the car and, you know, was probably would have had a house soon. It was about to join the chamber of commerce for mm. God's sake. And, uh, yeah, and came to New York and I lied and got my first job doing improv eight hours a day. At Jekyll and Hyde. At Jekyll and Hyde. What, what, what do you, what do you, 
What are you improvising for eight hours a day at Jekyll and Hyde? First, uh, can, I, I've never been to Jekyll and Hyde. Oh. Can, can you walk me through the experience? <laughs> well, uh, well, what it was, like what it used to be a few years ago when they moved it to Times Square, was a very different thing. It was a very sterile version of what it was. Mm-hmm. Um, when I got there, it was a group of about 30 actors who would work eight hours a day improvising half the time in character. And uh, it was four floors of a restaurant, kind of a theme restaurant, and... You'd go around in character, and you'd just mess around with the, um, with the customers, uh, and you did it in character. Um, so I, I played, like, three different characters over the years, but, and then eventually you'd work up to playing a doctor or a professor, and you got to do the big show where, like, Frankenstein's monster came down from the sixth-floor atrium, and it was all special effects. And mm-hmm. There were about 30 audio-animatronic puppets around the four floors where you had a camera in their eyes so you could see if anybody came up and touched you, or, and then you had a camera that showed the perspective. So sometimes people would take pictures with the audio animatronic thing and you could, on the sixth floor, there were two people always up there controlling the puppets and talking and using their voices and moving the mouths and moving their heads back and forth. I could see where that would be fun. Yeah, and we had free reign and after 10 o'clock we could say whatever the hell we wanted, you know. The place was known for having like 300 beers and it was a big bar that people went to without kids. Yeah. And we would come in and just really fuck with everybody and... You know, celebrities would bring their kids in there and, you know, you'd ignore the celebrities and just, you know, torture the kids because yeah. they had fun with it. And, and you're, you're not, like, serving anybody. No, no. We never, you're, you're just interacting as oh. character for eight hours yeah, a day. Yeah. Well, you rotate. Like, you'd spend a half an hour at the front desk, you know, at the front. There was a thing called the trap mm-hmm. where you'd bring people in and then you'd close the door and it was completely dark and you would talk to them and... The, the ceiling would drop like it was going to close in on them. And then just when it was about to crush them, you'd open the door and let them into the restaurant, uh-huh. you know, and yeah. And then you, you spend some time up on the sixth floor operating the puppets and some time, and then you'd spend an hour, a couple hours at a time on the floor interacting. And, you know, there was a microphone down on the main stage, down in the, down in the front. And eventually they put in an old timey phone and you'd get on the phone and, People in the booth would torture you, and they'd make a phone a noise like the phone was ringing. And you, wherever you were on the four floors, you had to run down and answer the phone. Uh-huh. And you'd be on the microphone, and so you could hear the voice of what was happening on the phone. And you would do bits back and forth, and you would run. You, you know, you'd just make stuff up. You'd marry someone who was marry some kid, or you would have a have a beauty pageant or a contest. You could do whatever the hell you wanted. It was just total creative chaos, hmm. and we would challenge each other and put each other on the spot and make each other do things, you know, get up and sing that song in front of everybody. And, uh, yeah. And the people that were there were incredibly creative. It was just a really great group of people. And, you know, Missy Pyle was there and Rob Corddry. And it was a people that I now know as directors and writers and screenwriters. And that main group was just, there were so many talented people. And then they, uh, they tried to buy into the whole theme restaurant boom mm-hmm. when Rainforest Cafe and All Star Cafe and Planet Hollywood and Hard Rock, and they all tried to overexpand. Yeah. And then they all realized it was just a $20 hamburger. Who cared? It, yeah. So they tried to make it a, uh, they tried to sterilize it and make it just six characters so that you would, the audience could always come in and see the person they wanted to see. And all of us left because it wasn't creative anymore. That also sounds, just from a customer point of view, annoying. Yeah. If, there, if there's 30 people having a great time putting on huh? a show, that's interesting. But if there's just like six people in costume, I'd rather just eat. Huh. 
Yeah, you know, and whenever management got involved, they'd be like, uh, oh, you're not allowed to interact with each other. You have to just go. So more people, because uh, surveys say that audiences want to interact with you. Uh-huh. And you'd be like, no, nah, it's more fun to yell at people from another floor. Yeah. 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 Those surveys, right, like, that's really, you take a survey, and, and the answer that you give is the answer in the moment that you're taking that survey. It doesn't mean that's the answer that you're really giving. Like, people who are on the floor actually interacting with other human beings are going to have a better perspective on what's entertaining than, than some corporate guy going through surveys and looking for statistical uh, uh, correspondences and whatnot. Teach, you've been a, a, a working actor now for how long? Uh, I haven't had a full-time job in about 10 or 11 years. Okay, that's amazing. Uh, um, You know, for people who are not in the business or for people like myself who are kind of on, on, uh, like, the real, like, shallow part of the business, uh, um, what does the life of a working actor look like? Because, like, for someone who doesn't know, you kind of think of acting as, like, okay, you're either working in television or you're in movies or maybe... You're in Broadway uh, 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 or touring, you know, something regional. Mm-hmm. But, but the actual, like, what is it like to be a working actor? You're, that, that is your job. That's what you do. What kind of stuff do you do? I assume corporate jobs and... and... Well, I'm, I'm going to try not to go on autopilot because I teach so many acting classes. Yeah. You know, and I teach improvisers and I teach down at the New York Film Academy. And I'm always teaching and trying to give them a real world perspective. But yeah. I don't want to just give you something that I'm used to saying. Um, I think it's a, uh, it's a full-time job. Uh, I know personally I came to New York with stars in my eyes. You know, once you get in here, you're like, yeah, I'm going to be famous. I'm going to be on Broadway. I'm going to be in the movies. I'm going to be on TV. And eventually for me, I realized I love the process. I love the work. I love, like for me, give me a character that like, I can't figure out and make, and I have to figure it out. And yeah. I'm like, yeah, that'll, it drives me nuts. And then when you finally figure out how to break through it and make it work and use yourself in a way that makes the character effective, whether it's on film or TV or, you know, so for me, I, I just want to work. Mm-hmm. I mean, for me, if I, if I can continue working and pay my bills working as a performer, life is great. Yeah. But I also had to realize there is no, Occasionally, people have the fantasy version where someone finds you and they're like, boom, you've been propelled to greatness. Or uh, people think when they get an agent, their life's going to change. But you have to hustle. As an actor, you're putting in nine to five every day or you're not going to work. So you're either, you you should be nine to fiving it doing correspondence or taking classes or working on monologues or working on sides or, or improvising or in rehearsals or it's like you're you're the CEO of your own company and you're responsible for everything for marketing for public relations for um for uh product development yeah. you know you can't stop taking classes just cuz you took a few and you think you're pretty good yeah the classes are what keep you from getting lazy. Yeah. I've heard Dave Rosowski say the same thing. He said, yeah. you, got, you got to think of yourself as, as your own business. Yeah. You got to run yourself like a business. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you have to be organized. You have to be financially responsible. Yeah. 
And, you know, when I first got here to New York, I blew through my savings, paying full price to go to Broadway shows, paying full price for everything. And now I'm like, never pay full price for anything. I won't even pay full price for a movie. Some may call it cheap, but others call it actor Uh, surviving. uh, Yeah, you live according to the means that you have available to you. How do you do that with like equity cards and SAG cards and whatnot? Get Get you discounts? Yeah, you know, you just learn along the way. I mean, I learned how to, there's certain places where you can get discounted movie tickets and there are, you know, you never pay full price or even go to TKTS when you can, for a Broadway show, when you can go to uh, get a student discount or if you can wait in line for the lottery or find out and have friends that are involved in marketing and you sign up for different things where they're papering the house, you know, where maybe they're not selling out, but they need to sell out because a reviewer's coming mm-hmm. or maybe it's in previews and they want a full house. So you could ways to get in for free or close to it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I'm lucky that I was living in Hell's Kitchen back in the late 90s. And uh, I had, there were restaurant owners there who knew that everyone in the neighborhood was an actor. And mm. there were certain restaurants there where you would walk in and they would like, they'd give you a, a glass of wine and a bowl of soup for like $2. Mm. You know, and there's a, my favorite restaurant over there, there's a place called Amarone where we would, I'd go there and the owner manager would come in and you would order a glass of wine and then he'd keep refilling it. And mm. he would, he would say, eh, I had this sitting around in the kitchen and he'd bring out like a plate of stuff for all of us who were actors. You mm. know? And he kept his bar full and all of us, now that we're working actors, every time I have friends that come to New York, I always bring them to that restaurant because yeah. karmically... He kept me from starving, you know? Yeah. It, well, it, it, it's, I mean, it's smart business if you want to look at it cynically, but, but looking at it beyond cynically, there is something really romantic about the neighborhood. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, and Theater Row is, like, not too far from there, and, and just something of, like, oh, it's, like, a thriving, active neighborhood, and it's not just businesses that have come in to open up yeah. and score from it, but it's people who know who live here and people who know who work here. And, and that, to me, it, being a lifelong New Yorker and not having New York as, a, as a, a, a place that I have dreamed of going is just, you know. Yeah. But that, to me, is like when I think of like what the romance of New York must be like yeah. for people coming here. That, that's kind of what I associate it with. Well, and it's, it's neighborhoods. You know, now that I've lived all over the place, because the first... I lived in probably 12 different places after I moved out of that place, just going from sublet to sublet yeah. back when my entire life could fit in one, one cab. Yeah. Um, and it, uh, yeah, that thing of neighborhoods of like, there are certain places where people actually know your name, mm-hmm. you know, my, my dry cleaner knows my name. Mm-hmm. There are certain people that I just pass the guy that's always leaning on the, on the mailbox mm-hmm. on the way to the subway. I've seen him there for two years. now that I'm in Astoria, and he waves at everybody and talks to everybody. And he's like, yeah, it's that guy that's yeah. always there. And he's yeah. like, but, he, you know, in Hell's Kitchen, there was, there was an old woman who was Italian and, like, had powdered, powdered her face so that it was very white and always wore her black wig. And she had two black and white dogs. And every day she would sit for two hours on this stoop. And then she would go to the Chinese restaurant and sit at the same table and have her dinner with the dogs sitting under the table and... You know, there was like the mayor of the street who ran the, ran the candle shop and was the pot dealer. You know, there was just, you had these, these neighborhood characters that everybody knew. Yeah. But that was before the neighborhood got priced out and all the Starbucks moved in. And instead of hardware stores, you had like neon lit uh, Thai places. 
Yeah, yeah. There, there's a great book uh, called The Death and Life of Great American Cities. Have you read it? Uh, mm-hmm. uh, 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 now I'm blanking. I think it's Jane Jacobs. Either Jane Jacobs or Jane Adams. I think it's Jane Jacobs. And uh, it's all about like looking at a handful of different American cities. This was written in the early 60s and kind of diagnosing why are some cities healthier than others. And that feel of health is like exactly that. You walk around certain neighborhoods and they just feel kind of alive. And mm-hmm. there's like a good sense of like health to it. And, uh, um, and, and cities that have been kind of more centrally planned out tend to uh, uh, not be great cities to be living in. It's, really? Yeah. Interesting. Where, well, where like, you know, a, a park area will be set off specifically for like, okay, these are like the projects or whatever. And then here's a public space and then here's a business center. And it, they always invariably end up being like, uh, um, not safe or not friendly places. Mm-hmm. It's like like a, a celebration Florida, back when Orlando built the perfect community, uh-huh. and then it all like everybody foreclosed on their mortgages. And yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, well, it, it's a hard thing to plan that because like what makes a neighborhood really awesome is like over time it evolves into awesome, and and, and it's the traffic of people moving through it, and it's the characters that you come to to know. Like I have my old lady who's always drinking coffee on her stoop. I don't know her name, but we say hi to each other yeah. every day. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, my barber who waves to me, I don't know his name. You know I mean? Like it, it's this thing where you walk around and you're like, Oh, I know these people and they know me. And, and, and if I'm not around, I mean, this, you're not really thinking this, but in the back of your mind, it's like, if I'm not around, they're going to know that I'm not around. It, it, you know what I mean? Like I'm not entirely anonymous here. Yeah. You and yeah, you, you look out for like my next door neighbor, uh, Maria is like 80 and yeah. I can always hear her on the stairs. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, she, cause she takes a long time. She's got a cane. And so she can only shop for a certain amount of things. So whenever I hear her, I'll run down and grab her bags yeah. for her. And, and, uh, you know, last night she said, here, you need this. And she gave me this little baggie and it was filled with white powder. And I was like, what is this? She was like, it's boric acid. It's for the roaches. <laughs> she was like, put it behind your refrigerator. So, you know, she's looking out for me. I'm looking out for her. Yeah. I, I was reading, uh, I think also in the same book. Four stories in an apartment building is the ideal number. That That's you mine. Yeah. You know, four stories. Yep. Four stories is just uh, 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 big enough that it feels really lived in and small enough that you can basically know everybody who lives in your building. Yeah. Anything bigger than that becomes too, there's going to be one family who you don't know. And yeah. that, that like feels about right. When you're in a neighbor, I love a story, a story is changing rapidly, but good chunks of it are still four story uh, buildings. My block, where there's only two four-story buildings. The entire block is single-family homes that are like two stories. Yeah. So from my bedroom, I look out and it looks like a penthouse. I can see the Bronx. Yeah. There's for blocks and blocks and blocks. And yeah. There's no buildings over two stories. Yeah. Which is so strange. Yeah. And so charming and you know. Yeah. yeah. Uh, um. What uh, uh, I, I want to continue talking about acting for a second. What is the greatest job you've had in recent memory? Oh, wow. What is the strangest job you've had in recent memory? <laughs> strangest job I had was playing Sasquatch in a musical for the New York Musical Theater Festival. Okay. And, uh, <laughs> oh, God. Um, I, was, I had to come in an hour early for latex and makeup. And I remember, I, God, I really didn't want to play this role. And I remember... Oh, someone's going to hear this. But I remember almost feeling like I wanted to throw this audition. I've never thrown an audition, but I didn't know whether the creators knew that it was funny or whether it was accidentally funny. Uh-huh. And, um, and I wound up getting the job offer, and I was like, okay, this is one of those challenges 
This is one of those things that, you know, it's a brief amount of time. It's going to challenge the hell out of me. How am I supposed to make this character either believable or likable or find a body for this character, you know, because you're playing Sasquatch. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's like, everybody has an idea of what it's supposed to look like, this mythical creature. But how do you move? (laughs) You know, how do you have a body for this guy? And I was head to toe in this fur suit. So it was so incredibly hot. And the whole thing was ridiculous. And, uh, and he was singing these like very genuine, real ballads. And, and I had a PA who followed me around who would rip open the Velcro on the back of my suit every time I walked off stage mm-hmm. and put ice packs on my spine mm-hmm. so I wouldn't pass out. That sounds uh, like the dream, man. It was insane. And I, I think that's one of those roles where I was like, hell yeah, let me do this. Yeah. I'm going to do it. Like, same thing. I played Santa Claus. Yeah. At Radio City. At Radio Musical. City. Yeah. And... and Never realized that would be impossible because everybody knows what Santa Claus looks, acts, and talks like. Yeah. So even just trying to find the ho 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 and get it in the right register with enough power is exhausting. Yeah. You know, and to interact with people, and then you know, I got to fly in a fat suit. Yeah. With flying by Foy, the people that did like Kathy Rigby and Peter Pan. Are you yourself flying, or are you yeah, in a you, sleigh that's flying? No, you're, you're, you're flying. physically you're flying. Physically flying. So like, you're. At intermission, you would take off the, 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 this enormous fat suit. You'd roll it down, and then they, you would step into this harness that was like leather and metal. And it's the type of thing where you really got to know the flying by foy tech really well because you, you had to... In order to put it on properly, they're, they're, you literally had to, your, yeah, well, you yeah, had to yeah. go down and like sure. lift certain things out of the way in order for it to be tightened exactly sure. enough. Yeah, uh, we all have anatomy. Oh, you don't want yeah, you would not want that yeah. anything to get caught. And um, they would do that during intermission, so you couldn't relax at all. You would have to get this entire thing rigged up, um, and then you would put back on the fat suit and then the Santa Claus pants, and you had these boots that they measured my feet in about thirty-two places mm-hmm. to create these boots. Mm-hmm. So they were created specifically for me. Were they the most comfortable boots? They were incredible. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, and then you had this bib that had like two microphone packs and two audio mix packs, so that they were redundant. So if anyone went out, you'd have another one. Hmm. So underneath your beard and your hat, you had two sets into your ears and two sets like woven through your beard. So you had two microphones woven through your beard. Yeah. So you were, you were hooked up like an android, and then you were being friendly and charming as Santa Claus. Yeah. And then you got to this point where you stepped behind a, a Christmas tree stand, and this overweight guy would reach through your jacket, through your pants, through your fat suit, and hook you up, and then pat you on the thigh and say, you're ready, wow. during the song. Yeah. And then you would lean into it a little bit, and then it was like, poof, you'd go 50 feet in the air holding on to a five-year-old kid who had the same setup. Is it scary? Is, is it exhilarating? Oh, it was first. Yeah, yeah it was exhilarating. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. There's nothing like it. Yeah. To be singing a song and trying to sing it properly while you're singing in the voice of Santa Claus in this incredible getup and watching, you know, thousands of people in the audience just mesmerized yeah. by the magic of the moment. And you got a five-year-old actor who's completely dependent on you because he can't stay upright, so you have to hold his hand and keep him upright because otherwise he would immediately fall upside down. Yeah. So you're trying to do all these things while you're trying to sing and act. And it, it, was, uh, it was another one of those acting challenges that just, you're like, I get to do this. I may not make the salary of an engineer or a doctor, but man, my life's cool sometimes. How long does it take you to, to 
Because I assume that even with a character like Santa Claus, who's, who's basically an archetype, you still want to have uh, 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 a certain kind of like groundedness, a certain kind of believability to this person. You still want yeah. to give him personality and not just be this one note, right? Oh, yeah. So you want to flesh this guy out to the best of your abilities, but, but then your brain really is being devoted to the kind of acrobatics and athleticism of this and, and to the animatronics of it. You're hooked up to so many goddamn things. You have to hit so many marks. You have to get your song perfect. And you have to be very safe in this, what sounds like a really painful claustrophobic harness. <laughs> so how long does it take to kind of be mentally comfortable keeping all of that stuff in mind and still having that open spot inside yourself that lets you give a performance that you're proud of? Well, I, th there was one more layer to add on to it yeah. in that the director of the show was a former Rockette. Uh-huh, okay. So she would direct you. There's a grid on stage so that the Rockettes uh -huh. know exactly where to be. Uh-huh. So when the 18 of them are out there, every single part of the stage is marked with either a number or a color. Mm -hmm. So there's these colored lines that go across the stage, and there are these... I don't know if I'm giving away state secrets, but when I was directed... This was not like an actor's director. This was a dance director. Uh -huh. So she would say, so when you're singing this song, at this moment, you should be on blue 22, and then by this word, you need to be on green 19. Mm -hmm. So I was directed like I was a raquette. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it took another completely different thing, because it wasn't about intention, and it wasn't about finding the honesty in it. It was like, hit your mark. Right. And you were on your own in terms of the acting of it. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's, it's one of those things where people say, like, yeah, acting's easy. I'm pretty. I can be an actor. Yeah. Or, or, some or pretty I'm emotional. People, I, have yeah. a, I have feelings. I can or, be an actor. Or I'm needy. Right. And uh, I like attention. Right. I can be an actor. Right, right. Uh, there's so much, there's so many technical things that go into it that um, I think it's like any other profession. Because if I were dealing with the stock market, I would know that I'm not just making an investment, that I'm also dealing with what's happening with this market, that market, what's happening in the, 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 uh, the George Takei and the NASCAR index, whatever those things are called. Sure, yeah. And, okay, um, yeah. Um, uh, you have to be aware of so many different elements. Yeah. So, I mean, I, 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 you have to give over to it. You have to trust that you've done the work and it's going to be there in your subconscious. Yeah. So the lyrics and what your intent is and what you as a character are trying to get out of this. Like you're trying to teach a cynical teenager about the meaning of Christmas, or you're trying to like give some joy to somebody's life, or you're trying to, um, whatever it is that you're trying to do, you just have to know that it's going to be there and you're balancing mm -hmm. and you're making sure that you don't lean over so that you don't fall. Cause that would ruin the moment. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you, uh, you know, and on camera, you're hitting your marks and you're having to, the first time that you shoot something like in a master shot, you have to, the first time, the first time I ever did a primetime thing on law and order on criminal intent, I had to, there were like nine main characters in the scene and it was a funeral or a, a, a memorial service. And I realized when I got there, I was like, Oh, we're going to have to shoot this thing from about 16 different angles. Mm -hmm. So as soon as I got there, I was terrified and I was like, okay, swallow that. You don't have enough energy to be terrified for mm -hmm. your first primetime TV show. 
you have to focus on what are you going to do this first time and how are you going to recreate that from every single camera angle? Mm-hmm. So you I, can't get too fancy. You, well, you, have to, you have to do something that's lifelike, but also not so fancy that you fuck yourself over. Not necessarily fancy. You just have to nail it. You have to remember it. Uh-huh. So like I had to, it was an, in my case, it was an atheist that was dying, that died and they were going to scatter her ashes. And then I show up with one of the other guys and start praying over the ashes and pissing everybody off. And, but at that moment, when I looked up, to the sky and I put my hand in the air, I realized I'm going to have to look up at exactly the same moment yeah. and put my hand up at exactly the same place. Yeah. Even when the camera is one foot away from me shooting right. directly up my nose right. or when the camera is shooting from my angle and I have to put just my hand in there yeah. or when they're, they, 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 they pulled back and I had to have one foot on my mark and then slowly move my body into place as the camera pulled away. Mm but you're still trying to act and you're still trying to, there are just so many technical things that are a part of it. Yeah. And I think with like, like any other, any other job, there are so many elements that you have to absorb. If you're a race car driver, you're worried about so many elements of your car and where things are, but you're also worried about everybody else. Mm -hmm. And you're worried about what happens in the turns and you're planning ahead for your next move and Mm -hmm. you're planning and you just have to feel the car. So I think with acting, there's so many things you can only learn on set and there's so many things that you learn through experience and you learn through failure. So, and, and you don't get a lot of prep time, right? Like when, when you're called no. in to do law and order, it's mm-hmm. not like you're given rehearsal time on the set. Nope. You, you have to know your lines, know your deal, take care of your performance, show up ready mm-hmm. to go. And then, uh, uh, uh hit nine different cues, yeah. right? The, the rehearsal is camera rehearsal. Yeah. The rehearsal is for one. It's for the, the main characters to get used to you, to make sure that you're doing your job, but it's for camera and for setting marks so that you know, okay, when I walk in, I need to hit this mark on the floor right when this person 30 feet away says this line, mm-hmm. because then my head will be in between Mariska Hargitay's head and Raul Esparza's head, mm-hmm. because... I have to be right in between them right at that moment so that the camera sees me there turn to talk to Ice-T. Mm-hmm. So you're acting, but you also have to know how to walk in such a way that you hit it right at that moment when something happens in a scene. Yeah. So there are technical elements more than anything. All the preparation, artistically, you should have done before you get there. Yeah. How do you keep yourself from freaking out? when? Because I imagine you, you show up on a set and, and, and I imagine there isn't like the warmest, most personal touch. You have a job to be done. And there's a million people doing a million jobs and there's a bunch of lights and there's a bunch of shit around and there's cables everywhere. How do, how do you keep yourself from, from just not being overwhelmed by the technicalities of things? How do, you, how do you keep your eye on what you have to do as a performer to get, to get the best acting that you can? You know, a good set has a good... Uh, the second AD is in charge of the actors. And, and then uh, on a place like, um, and I did the season opener of SVU last year, mm-hmm. which was like on, based on the Cleveland kidnappings. Mm-hmm. And uh, every person on that set had, they give everybody this little cheat sheet that has everyone's name and, and characters and might even have their pictures on it. Mm-hmm. So like, I remember walking into wardrobe and the woman in wardrobe had just looked down, saw the picture, saw me, and she was like, hey, TJ, come on in. Mm-hmm. So they're prepared. They know that if I have this list of everybody and I know who I'm going to meet and I know what their picture looks like, I can greet them by name and that makes them less nervous. Yeah. And then when you're on set, every actor, if they want, this is their job. You know, They've been doing it for 16 years. If they want to get home and make dinner for their family or have dinner with their family, they want to be done on time. Yeah. 
The best way to do that is to treat all the guest actors like gold. So they went out of their way to shake hands and say, hey, great to have you. Welcome aboard. Yeah. Really nice to have you. And they made you feel so welcome and so comfortable so that you were able to jump ahead of the first few nervous takes and jump to the good takes. Mm -hmm. And that's very smart on their part. Yeah. So if you're on a good set, they go out of their way to make everybody feel like gold. Yeah. Everybody. So that you do good work. And it serves their purpose. So they wind up having a good partner that's giving them something in the scene who's not deer in the headlights. Um, God, one of my favorite... Um, uh, Danny, um, one, one of the leads on SVU, we were doing a scene together where he was interrogating me. And uh, they do... When they're shooting, they shoot from a lot of different angles. And uh, there's something called coverage when they're shooting you. So maybe mm -hmm. they might shoot over someone else's shoulder or they shoot a close-up. And they were shooting me with two cameras at the same time to save time. And, uh, and I'm doing the scene with Danny and with Ice-T. And we're going through it all. And there's a moment where he says, we found the girls at your house in your basement. And when they shot him, he said his lines and said everything directly at me. And then when it was my turn, we got one extra take in there where he came after me and, excuse my French, he said, we found her in your fucking house, in your fucking basement. Because his audio didn't matter in that moment because yeah. they were using my audio. Yeah, but it gave you the best and response you can get. fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it was just enough, the element of danger and the, and, you know, and it, it, he was... He was so fantastic. That's Such a good a, partner, right? Yeah, yeah. Let me, let me help your performance by just giving you everything I've got, even when it's not on my face. Yeah. And we all knew. We yeah. all knew that that take was fantastic. Yeah. You know, he was, and it was so giving of yeah. him. He didn't have to do that. He barely even had to be there. He wasn't even on camera. Yeah. And you get on a set where there's chaos, and you say, oh, crap, okay. The only way I'm going to give a good performance is if I'm not leaning on anybody at this point. Like if there's a brand new director in an independent film and they have no idea what they're doing and things are running late, you say, all right, I need to be the calm in the storm here. So I remember shooting something in, uh, in Chicago where, I, where I, no one had rehearsed and some of the actors were relatively new. And I remember saying to the director, uh, hey, this is all on me, but can we run this a couple of times before you shoot it? Because... You know, the other actors weren't even completely off book. And, yeah. and we had never met. And we just needed to run it a couple of times to make them more comfortable in this, this scene at a, at a dinner table. And um, so as an actor, you just you take a hit for the team and you say, this is all me. I'm sorry. Blame it on me. It's all my fault. You know, it would really help me and my... Can we maybe do this a couple of times? Mm -hmm. Sorry, you guys. When you could see the deer in the headlights in their eyes mm -hmm. and you knew they needed it. Mm -hmm. So when it's not going your way, I guess that's when you realize you're the veteran actor in the room and it's your job to, to, to do it, to do what needs to be done to make sure everybody has a safe set and they feel comfortable without causing disruption. This is a really broad, general question, so I apologize for it. But, uh, uh, um, so you are very active in television uh, uh, and filming stuff. Uh, uh, have a lot of experience in live theater, have a lot of experience in musical theater, and have a lot of experience in improv theater. Yeah. Uh, um, can you talk a little bit about the 
differences of those worlds? Are they that yeah. different? I mean, there's a lot of technical differences, obviously, but uh, uh, um, like, for, do, you, do, you, do you love them all? Or, or are some of them like, mm. Yeah, you know, I, I do. Yeah. I do. Is it, I, is it just the thrill of the challenge of each new job that you get to, to try to figure out how to make this work? Yeah, I think I love the challenge of it. And I love, I mean, I was always, I always loved puzzles yeah. as a kid. And I, mean, I think I even had a subscription to like something like Games Magazine, one of those things where it was like all brain teasers all mm-hmm. the time. And I love the detective work of it all, of figuring out how do I make this work? Well, that didn't work. What else can I do to make it work? Yeah. And, and I love the excitement of the danger of tackling something new. Yeah. You know, just recently, you know, I studied with Adam Wade and started doing some storytelling. And then storytelling is terrifying and exhilarating because it's a brand new creative outlet. So for me, I love the challenge of that, and I love exploring something new that's creative, that taps into a different part of your brain. To me, that's, that's incredible. So when I'm on a television set, you know, there was a learning curve there. And now uh, there are certain f- switches you can flip, and I'm like, okay, now this is, I know what I need to do for television. And then on a film set, it's, it's different. It's a lot of... There's a lot of hurry up and wait, you know, and learning how do you keep yourself focused yeah. when you have two hours in between this and this. And um, keep your energy up and keep your health good yeah, and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then for me, improv, improv was always the terrifying thing compared to live theater. And with, with live theater, I know I'm comfortable in an audition. I know I can audition well. And if I book something, I know I'll find a way to make it work. And I will go crazy until I do, but I will find a way to make it work, even when it's a really rough situation. You know, I've had some situations where the director was kind of absent or, you know, you're, you're one of your co-actors is, is completely insane and not giving at all, mm-hmm. you know, and you find a way to make it work. But with improv, improv's terrifying, and you have no way of knowing. You know, when I started at UCB back in the day with, you know, I studied with uh, Armando Diaz first and then Amy Poehler, and they both taught me, they were like, you know, you have to be vulnerable enough to be honest and, and you have to take risks and, and, you have to, and you have to listen. And eventually with improv, I realized, ah, improv training is theater training. Mm. You know, that's why, that's why I started teaching at the Magnet is teaching uh, uh, audition classes because a lot of improvisers didn't know that they were trained actors. Mm-hmm. They were like, oh, I just do improv. Well, I think if you only do improv, it, 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 when you're then handed a script... It feels so artificial having... It's not even other people's words coming out of your mouth. It, it, it's that you're so used to your, your feelings and your inner life then giving expression to these words. Mm-hmm. And now suddenly you're given words and, and you don't know how to access this inner life and these feelings that are behind it. And that's where it feels... You see a lot of improvisers given a text, suddenly everything gets that flat general feeling mm-hmm. really good improvisers you know it it, it so but you know you know what you know what? that that exact same thing happens to theater actors yeah. when they audition for television yeah oh yeah because theater actors are used to being very broad and very big and and they have a full arc that they follow yeah. every single night whereas for television you're like no 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 this scene's a minute or y- everything has to be really intimate and honest and simple and real but with energy and I, I had the ability, uh, I was at ABC as a reader for something, for a TV show. And there were a whole bunch of young guys that came in that were 
a couple of them were Tony winners and Tony nominees, and they were all awful. Yeah. They were unprepared. Yeah, yeah. They they were loud and they were flat and they just didn't they didn't know how to how to how to act without being big. Yeah. They didn't know how to keep it intimate but still have energy and intent. And and so when you talk about improvisers not able to do it, I'm like, yeah, it just requires a little training. Well, I and I think you need practice like reading and verbalizing yeah. other words. You, 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 you need to read monologues out loud. You need to feel the rhythm of somebody else's dialogue coming mm-hmm. out of your mouth. It, but like I, I noticed that a lot with trained actors in my classes. Uh, um, it, it, one of, I think, the big differences between classical stage training, not classical, but, mm-hmm. but sta- non-improvisational stage training and, and improv, is um, improvisers are generally much better at handling the kind of boring in-between moments between gigantic, uh, emotionally urgent uh, 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 scenes. Mm -hmm. I've noticed that people with more classical acting training, if you're in a scene that's just like two people on a couch watching TV, they will have a tendency to want to make it really big. And I think part of that is just the training of an actor. You, You have a tendency, you don't have a lot of time to do scene study, and so your scenes tend to be the really big powerful emotional ones to teach people how to access that and and I think part of it is also you're used to the arc of having three acts or five acts or whatever to develop this great thing and then you're in a two minute long scene that is literally you're watching Netflix with your partner Mm -hmm. and there's no problems between you Uh, and and you kind of see this like outsized emotional performance that doesn't quite fit so one of the best things that I think actors can take from improv classes is that adaptability to play the boring shit and make the boring shit feel alive and have the same sense of intention behind it without making it seem like dramatic intention. Oh, you, you, always you, going you, for the conflict. Yeah. That, that was, it, it, yeah. I was like that when I started. Yeah. Was. That's, I think that's, I think that you, you, you hit that on the head. That's what actors look for. What is the central conflict yeah. in the scene? Yeah. What do you want? What do they want? What's the conflict? Which theatrically works. Yeah. But an improv, if you're always looking for the conflict, it turns into an argument and it's boring. Yes. Um, and it, it, you, you try to cram a three-act play into a two-minute yeah. scene for every yeah. single scene. That's, that's the issue. Well, it's also being... Trusting yourself and your scene partner enough to be uh, vulnerable enough to not have a dramatic thing happen and trust that the, there are moments that'll be really interesting of just the minutia of the moment of, of simplicity and that the audience will see yeah. in that one eyebrow... Raised, yeah. yeah, the humor in the in the situation because they know that eyebrow, yeah, as opposed to turning it into something dialed up to a nine all the time, yeah. Uh, an improv also. Uh, I remember auditioning for something once, and a friend of mine said, "Why are you nervous? You improvise all the time." And I'm like, "Yeah, I know, but this is a this is a this is a monologue." And they were like, "Yeah, monologue's easy. It's already written. What you do in improv is hard." And yes, that's just a state of mind, a, a way to look at it. Yeah. But I look at that for my auditions now. I go into auditions and I think, you know what? This is already written for me. Yeah. I, this is something that I can just uh, approach with simplicity and honesty and find what's happening. Whereas in improv, you're creating everything from scratch. Yeah. Which it, it's funny for me. It, I feel the opposite. Having almost no experience in, in legit acting auditioning really haphazardly, but improvising a lot. 
I feel a, a huge sense of comfort in the fact that uh, any choice will be fine for me. And, and when I go in for an audition, and partly this is just because I'm so inexperienced at auditioning, I don't make a job out of auditioning. I, 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 somebody told me that, and I think it's, you might have told me that. Y you have to, going out for the audition and doing it, you have to consider as being, you did your work for that day. You have to treat it like a job, mm -hmm. and you have to practice that job and you know, be flexible with it. For me, when I'm handed a script like that, it's this terrifying thing of, okay, I know this isn't true, but there's a, there's a correct answer to this. And I have I had nine seconds to figure it out and give them the correct answer, which isn't, you know, obviously, it, 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 much like improv, it, it has to do with the choices that you're making mm -hmm. and your commitment and your honesty and your simplicity. But that's that terrifying thing of like, okay, this is already written. There's a right answer. And I don't, there's one correct thing to do. I don't know what it is. I heard an interview with Mark Rylance uh, recently, um, and he was talking about auditioning. And he said, tell me what your opinion is on this. He said he, he realized uh, um, early on that he needs to just think of his auditions as being like a little mini play, that he, he can't really control what people want from him. But what he can do is give the best performance that he can and entertain these people. And so he just takes the scripts that he's given and he gives them a little beginning, middle, and end. He treats it all like a little play and he has fun. Uh, performing that play for you. And if he walks away feeling like you were entertained by it, he did his job. And yeah. and whether you want him or not for the role, that's kind of up to the fates. Yeah. That that applies in so many ways in so many different situations. It's 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 really true. It's yeah. the same thing applies when you're you know, you're auditioning for a commercial. You have to be, give it a beginning, middle and an ending. When you, if you go in and audition, it's so hard to remember this as an actor, but when you go in, if you're auditioning for Shakespeare, if you're auditioning for a play, for a musical, for anything, if you leave the room having had fun, yeah. chances are they enjoyed it. Yeah. Because if you're enjoying yourself, then the, it's hard to enjoy yourself and be artificial. Yes. So if you're really listening and answering and you're having fun with your reader and you're, you're finding the little moments of like joy as an actor that you get to like maybe work with a good script, yeah. you know, sometimes you just find a, you just find a line that's like, that's like, great dark chocolate yeah. that just like you're like that's I want that's just tastes good in your mouth you know? or, or when you realize what this line means you've read it a few times and then mm -hmm. as it's coming out of your mouth you realize why you're saying this line you suddenly have like a thought of like oh wait hold on I didn't that's a moment that I didn't notice before that's a thrilling uh, 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 thing when you find a moment that you didn't see before and you realize oh wait those are two separate thoughts Ah, okay. It's interesting because like you, 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 when you become afraid, you become defensive. And when you become defensive, you approach an audition from this point of view of what do they want from me? It's this real scary thing. Uh, uh, whereas like when you're relaxed and, 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 and you know that this audience is enjoying you, you're never thinking, what do they want of me? You're, you're, it's always this thing of like, how can, I, how can I interest you? How can I entertain you? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. uh, um, I don't know if that's your experience, but but for for me, like when I'm improvising, I rarely think of whether I'm being entertaining. I, I uh, but I often think of, am I myself interested in what's happening in the scene right now? And if I am, 
uh, um, that's what I have to give you. And uh, you know what I mean? Like I'm, I'm playing the scene to my partner. I'm not playing it to the audience. I'm involved in what matters to the two of us in this scene, and I hope you guys enjoy it. But I'm not too concerned about the effect that I'm having. Right. When I'm cut off and I'm not, and I'm tense and I'm nervous and I'm tight, 99% of my mental energy is on, are these people enjoying this? And then 1% of the energy is on actually kind of living in, in this scene. It's, yeah, if, if, there's, if there's one person in the audience that you're trying to impress, forget it. Yeah. You'll be so out of it. And it's... I think we've all been there at one point or another when there's a certain person that you have a certain oh, God, respect yeah. for. And oh, you're like, yeah. oh, yeah, this is... You know, and it's not even like it's an audition. It's just, oh, I really want this person to see me do good work. Yeah. But just putting that thought in your mind takes you out of that moment-by-moment moment thing of just saying, you know what, whatever happens. I, one, one of my favorite things to say is uh, uh, I absolve you of any responsibility to do anything. Yeah. You know, you are not responsible. Yeah, All you have yeah, to do yeah. is go out and have honest moments with somebody. And if it's honest, the audience will be drawn in. Yeah. If it's not, if it's fake, if you're going for the jokes, it's not. Nobody wants to see that. Yeah. I, I don't know. There, and, and even going back to, like, Santa Claus, there's got, there has to be an element of truthfulness. There has to be an, an honesty to it in any comedic character, whether it's improvised or scripted. If it doesn't come from a place of honesty, if that person doesn't really have a want, if that person doesn't really have even a really bizarre character, they have something they want that they believe in. Yeah. You know, it's... When I, when I talk to people, I get cast as villains all the time. Like, I get cast as murderers, psychopaths, pedophiles. That's when you know you've made it in New York. Oh, when yeah. you go into audition for your first pedophile. Oh, yeah. Um, um, uh, you... Uh, you have to make that guy the hero mm -hmm. because a villain is not a villain in their own mind. In their own mind, they're doing everything for the right reasons. So part of the acting process is you have to find, no matter how reprehensible that person might be, you have to know that not only are you making the right choice, but it's for the good, mm -hmm. you know, for the good of you, for the good of the world, whatever the case may be, you know, you're right. And, uh, it's, it's fun it's fun for me, having been improvising and acting for so long, to be able to cross-pollinate those mm -hmm. and to be able to find a character and, and maybe play a character that is just beyond, uh, beyond like, the, the audience can't stand your choices. Yeah. Or as a, as a, you're, you just seem like a despicable human being. But if you know as a character that everything you're doing is right, that really, it just, it's so much fun to play and it yeah. really helps to have the... To know that you're right. Yeah. Because that way it'll come from an honest place. We are, are, are running out of time rapidly, so I don't want to leave yeah. this conversation before talking about NIMF, the New York Musical Improv Festival, coming up pretty soon. You must be losing your mind. Uh, yeah, I sleep occasionally. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's coming up when? October 5th? Yeah, October 15th, 15th to the 18th yeah. at the Magnet. And people that don't know, it's, this is our seventh year doing the New York Musical Improv Festival. And, uh, you are one of the producers. Yes. Let's give a quick shout out to the other producers who are working so hard on the festival. Yes. There are three of us. We're co-producers. It's me, Robin Rothman and Michael Lutton. Mm -hmm. Uh, Robin and I have been together with this. She's my work wife. We've been working on this thing for seven years. Uh, and we have 215 performers coming in from all over the United States and Canada, musicians, comedians, singers, improvisers. Uh, all coming to New York to perform at the Magnet Theater uh, for four nights from the 15th to the 18th. Every, 
pushing the boundaries of what musical improv is, we have every conceivable thing coming in from uh, from around North America, and I I'm so excited to see these people perform. Um, we have uh, it's. When we started this thing seven years ago, the, the goal behind it, when, when I first pitched this to the Magnet and said, why don't we do this even though we only have two musical improv teams and nobody else has it? Let's try to do this festival. Mm. Let's see what happens. And uh, we wanted to uh, treat the performers like gold because often you'll go to festivals and they'll put you on at three in the morning and mm. charge you $100 once you get there to not be able to see anybody else. And, just to try to treat the performers with respect, especially if they're paying money to fly out to New York sure, yeah. and putting themselves up. Yeah. Um, to promote musical improv as a form, which has been amazing to see it explode. I mean, we don't take credit for it. We'd like to say we have a little part in that, uh, that musical improv has exploded in the past seven years around the country. Yeah, you guys have been witness to, to a yeah. huge rapid-fire uh, evolution of yeah, the form. Yeah, it's been incredible to yeah. see it expand and yeah. to see it grow and morph. And then to promote the magnet, and it's been so great to see the magnet take on musical improv, and even you know now Tuesday nights, the entire night's devoted to musical improv. Um, and we just wanted to make sure that uh, we would also promote every group, no matter where they're from, whether they're from a rival theater in in New York City. We'll provide a link to their theater and to their other shows, and just to and to build a, a community. And because the magnet has a great community, I love the magnet's community. And then within this festival, you get people from all different s- schools of thought and different training methods, and they all come together. And for those four days, it's a big party where you celebrate what everybody else is doing. And you know, we have a bunch of special things set up for the performers as well. You yeah. know, even we do a big free brunch for them. Yeah. You know, get them some New York City bagels and mimosas, and everybody just looks forward to that, where you meet everybody from all around the country and start cross-pollinating ideas, and people are moving to different cities and starting new theaters. Yeah, and, yeah teaching at each other's theaters and I can you can tell I'm not excited at all about it that is kind of the nice thing of a festival it's like an orgy yeah. of ideas a little bit yeah, you, you yeah, get yeah, you yeah. get together to breed mm-hmm. uh, uh, obviously you can't play favorites but any returning uh, favorites that people should be really excited about this year oh sure I mean uh, that's what I love is that they keep normally you go to a festival and then you're done yeah <laughs> but there's so many groups that keep wanting to come back and that we'd love to have back so you know one of my favorite the improvised Sondheim project is coming back they're going to be performing on Friday night with Wonderland, one of the Magnet House teams. Mm-hmm. Um, Mansicle uh, out of Chicago is coming back. These seven guys in about 30 wigs, and they're just, they're brilliant. They're really amazing. And they're performing with uh, LaDona Improvisata. Lisa Flanagan does an improvised one-woman opera, mm-hmm. which is surprisingly funny, and I'm not a fan of opera, but I love watching that show. Um, and then there's some new stuff, too, that we're really excited about. There's um, Peter Aguero from The Moth mm-hmm. uh, leads a band called BTK Band. And they're doing the late night Friday show, uh, and it's an improvised rock concert. That's part storytelling, part rock concert. Interviews with the audience, male and female burlesque dancers. It's amazing. An opening for them is a group out of Chicago called Buzzed Broadway, and their their show is actually a drinking game based on the stereotypes of musical theater. Yeah, and those two are paired together. So Friday night is going to be it's going to be off oh, the hook. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then even you know we have the IPO. We do an initial public offering show where we have. Four teams that maybe are a little on the newer side. Yeah. And, you know, we have a group coming from California that's all teens. <laughs> it's called Tri-Valley High. And it's an improv group that's all teenagers. And they're all flying in from California yeah. to come to perform. 
you know, and just there's homegrown people. There's there's all sorts of groups from around New York performing, and we have people coming from 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 Canada and from California, and there are solo acts and duet acts, and uh, just so many. You know, Baby Wants Candy, of course, is going to be back. They've been here for seven years, uh, and they're going to be the final act on Sunday. Uh, on the Sunday night, we're doing a final act with um, uh, Louise Requested, based out of Vancouver, which is a solo. Uh, uh, cabaret and then Goats which is a musical improv house team from the Magnet and then Baby Wants Candy mm-hmm. um, and uh, and then we're also we always do a benefit every year so we've been raising money for Gilda's Club New York City mm-hmm. uh, raising money and awareness for women and families living with cancer and especially love the fact that we're able to really raise awareness within such a young community as the Magnet. Sure, yeah. And uh, in the times that we've been doing it, a number of people from the Magnet, unfortunately and fortunately, have, have been diagnosed and were, have been living with cancer and have used Gilda's Club, many of whom found out about it through, through the Magnet and through this benefit. And this year, the benefit, we're doing a rock band karaoke on Friday the 9th of October mm-hmm. and it's uh, you can sign up all the ticket money goes to Gilda's Club everything goes to Gilda's Club and we have a full band performing which is it's amazing yeah a full band and you can just sign up to sing with the full band yeah. and they've been rehearsing for over a month and uh, yeah and it's just great it's and we get cool. to do that as a fundraiser what's the website where can people sign up uh, www.nymif.com so for New York Musical Improv Festival nymif.com and if you can't remember that because you're listening to this on a train or something just go to the magnet website for magnettheater.com and you can hook in through the magnet theater and they'll be able to just look on the regular calendar and you'll be able to see all the dates already there in the october calendar um yeah so i can't believe it's been seven years it's insane uh and i can't wait for to see everybody and get to see them perform because yeah. the level of excitement for over seven years, the fact that people are still thrilled to do it. Yeah. And it's like giving birth for the seventh time. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's to seven more years. Yeah. TJ Mannix, thank you for talking, my friend. Great, absolutely. It's a pleasure. pleasure. Uh, thank you guys for listening. This has been the podcast. Thank you to our producer, Evan Ford Barden, to our engineer, Grant Michael Goldberg, to our executive producer, Ed Herpsman, and to today's guest, TJ Mannix. The biggest thanks, as always, to you guys for listening. Hope you had fun. Thanks, everyone. Bye. 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 You've been listening to the Magnet Podcast. This podcast has been brought to you by the Magnet Training Center, where we teach classes in improvisation, sketch writing, musical improv, storytelling, and more. If you're interested in checking us out, we offer free weekly intro to improv classes. You can find out more about those free intro classes and all other classes we offer at magnettheater.com. Our podcast is available on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please head over to iTunes and give us a positive rating. We appreciate the support. Also, be sure to check out the Magnet Theater for top-notch comedy shows seven nights a week. All information regarding classes and shows can be found at magnettheater.com.